Welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. I am Sheldon Swice. We are engaging our minds and cultivating our spirits so that we can grow deeply, intellectually, spiritually, and become more productive through suffering. I have a very special guest here today. My pastor, Erwin Lutzer, who has been instrumental in my growth spiritually for the last couple decades. Let me give you the proper introduction, Pastor. Uh, we are now in the historic Moody Church, and Dr. Lutzer earned his BTH degree from Winnipeg Bible College, and his, is that theology degree, THM? THM is yeah. theology, and mm -hmm. I also, you'll probably be yeah. saying it in a moment, I have a master's degree in philosophy from Loyola University, actually Caldoon. Mm -hmm. I even passed my comps for my PhD in philosophy, but I never did do a dissertation. No. But I, I became pastor of Moody Church okay. and became too busy. But pastor, the work you've done has surpassed many who have earned double the PhDs. He's also an award-winning author and featured speaker on three radio programs, can be heard over 700 radio stations in the United States and around the world. Dr. Luster and his wife, Rebecca, live in Chicago, have three grown children and eight grandchildren and multiplicity of amazing books. The one specifically I'm dealing with today is The Church in Babylon, which has been amazing work dealing with how to navigate the waters in a world that rejects you, rejects your thoughts, your ideas, and only wants you to behave in the way they desire. Well, what does Christ want? How do we really get through these darkness and waters in the best way possible that honors God and brings us redemption? Pastor, what was the motivation for this book? First of all, uh, Caldoun, I do want to greet our many listeners and thank you so much for watching this. I think that as this continues, you'll discover Caldoun's heart and my heart. We're interested in the culture. We're interested in making a difference at a time of great difficulty. You know, Caldoun, the reason I entitled this book, The Church in Babylon, is because Israel went from Jerusalem. They were taken captive, of course, and they went to Babylon. And in the midst of Babylon, a culture that was filled with illicit sexuality, paganism, God said to the Jews, I want you to be a witness there. Now, when they went to Babylon, terrible things happened in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar's armies threw babies against rocks and, and all those terrible things. But God says, now, in light of the fact that you're there, I've called you there. Caldoun, isn't that a wonderful example of the church? Even though we may be under discipline today, the fact is that we are still called to be lights in a culture that has rejected us mm. or that is continuing to reject us. I put it this way in the book, and then later on I can uh, dissect some of the issues, but it used to be that all of our games were home games, so to speak. When we played out on the field of life and culture, people in the stands were indifferent. Many of them supported us, even if half-heartedly. Today, all of our games are away games. The people in the stands in culture rejoice over our failures. They shout epithets at us. And so it is much more difficult. But the point that I make is we are not called to success like Jeremiah. He wasn't called to success. He was called to faithfulness. Mm. So I looked around and I said, what are those issues that we as a church need to confront? And that's why, you know, I have a chapter on the conscience, because when you think of what Daniel went through, there are all kinds of conflicts of conscience. 
when you think of the state, you know, the state becoming God, there's a chapter. And then, of course, I branched into the kind of issues that we have that they didn't, such as social media, technology, what that means to the church and the struggles there. And then, of course, also transgenderism and even immigration and five false gospels within the evangelical church. All that in the book that you are holding. All that in this book, ladies and gentlemen. Again, you're listening to the Logically Faithful podcast and video with Calvin Swice and my guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. So we're back with Logically Faithful. I'm here with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, my pastor from the Moody Memorial Church, who's been instrumental in my life and the life of many. We were interviewing about the book, The Church in Babylon. Pastor, in the book you have a metaphor with a man in the mountainside who's watching the streams and the church is supposed to be the guardian of the streams. Can you elaborate on that and break that down for us and how that applies? To yeah, you? actually, the story that I tell is one that uh, I read about the keeper of the springs. There is a story about how a, a, a stream would come to a village and it would come from the mountain and there was somebody high up on the mountain who would make sure that the stream remained pure. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd take out dead animals and he'd take out uh, rotten wood and so forth. But the people couldn't see him. It cost money to pay for his salary. So they said, we don't need him. Well, pretty soon as the story goes, the water came down, the people continued to drink, but their kids got sick. There was disease in the city. And they finally said, you know what we have to do? We have to employ once again the keeper of the springs. My point is this. The Church of Jesus Christ is the guardian of the gospel. Hmm. And if we don't see ourselves as kind of the keeper of the springs, I think I use that in my chapter on five false gospels within the evangelical church. Mm -hmm. Because what I want people to see is those of us who are in ministry and have positions of responsibility within the church, we are really the keeper of the spring. And uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ today oftentimes is, uh, is mixed with other things. People don't understand it clearly. And um, the church actually is struggling also as to what to do. How do we impact culture and yet not become a stumbling block mm -hmm. to our culture? So these are the kinds of issues that I've been thinking about for a long time. And that is just a brilliant metaphor the keepers of the spring would that not also apply in a sense not just for the gospel itself which is the saving power of god for our salvation but also the saving power for medicine for science for education and for that spring is polluted don't we have materialism hedonism naturalism peeping in there and scientism oh my goodness yes especially when you think about culture we're living at a time when people want to normalize the bizarre mm. and so what you have is culture eating theology for lunch. And what you have is therefore the church backing down on many important issues in an attempt to be um, in line with culture. And many younger theologians argue we should do that in order that we might not be a stumbling block. Well, let's just bring it out on the table, sure, okay, Caldoun? Sure. Yeah. Take, for example, the issue of same-sex marriage. Many younger no, evangelicals there, are yeah. saying, you know, that we ought to go along with that because it's the most loving thing. Mm -hmm. Well, the Bible defines love. It says, herein is love that you keep my commandments. We are not allowed to come up with our own definition of what love is. 
But we're living in a culture where the pressure is so great to conform. Usually the word love is used like an elastic band to cover everything that we wanted to cover mm -hmm. so that we uh, don't have to obey the explicit teachings of scripture. So that's the place in which we find ourselves. And oftentimes it is justified saying, well, we still preach the cross and we don't want to be a stumbling block. So one of the things I wrestled with as a pastor is that very thing. How do we stand against the culture and at the same time still give a loving witness to the cross, yes. even though we are opposed to some of the things that are happening in the culture? And so these are issues. So give us one practical step then of being a light, being the salt and light to the world, but at the same time standing against the world, but being for the world in, in that paradox. Well, how, how do you do it on a practical level? Well, let's talk about same-sex marriage since I raised the issue. I think that what we as a church have to do is we have to be welcoming, but not affirming. Mm. In other words, we can welcome the culture into the church and anyone into the church, but we cannot affirm uh, their lifestyle if they're in an ungodly relationship. And just like we cannot adulterers and a whole host of other things, you know, sometimes we pick on the same sex issue and we forget we've got all these other issues going on. Right. So as a church, what we need to do is to say, on the one hand, we're open to everyone and we welcome everyone, but just know that here we stand, if I might quote some German here, you know, okay. Luther at the Diet of Worms, uh -huh. here stehe ich, ich kann nicht anders. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. And we will not bow to culture. And this is uh, the kind of pressure, and there are two kinds of pressure. There's cultural pressure, mm -hmm. which I've talked about, but there's also legal pressure. Mm. It used yes. to be that we were just wrong, and now with hate speech and all, we're not only wrong, we are illegal, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, what the church has to do is to say, where are those issues where we have commonality with the culture, and we can stand with the culture and so forth, but where do we draw the line? Where's the line in the sand for us? And I believe that the church has to draw that line and individuals have to draw that line. I always said, Pastor, that and the line that we draw, the line is still a line of love, drawn in love, but it's still a line, right? Mm -hmm. Do you affirm there's a distinction then between judging the person as opposed to judging the behavior of the person the most, one of the most quoted verses in all the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not yeah. means that he be judged, Matthew 7. How do you answer those uh, You know, I'm going to answer that differently than you expect me to, okay? What you hear in today's culture is we should love the sinner but hate the sin. That's and th and that's, that's probably, probably true. But it's interesting that in the Bible, God even talks about hating the wicked. Mm. Uh, and as R.C. Sproul once made the statement, he said, God doesn't send sin to hell, he, he sends sinners to hell. <laughs> wow. so, so let's yeah. be very careful here. Mm -hmm. I think that we should love the sinner, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so let me be clear about that. But sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish the sinner from his sin. And so what we have to do is to say, as I believe God does, I love you, I love you as a sinner, and I don't exactly separate sin from sinners. I, I love sinners, period. But it's not just that I 
hate the sin. Well, I do hate the sin. Maybe I'm being a little confusing here. That's okay. That's I think it. that what we have to do is to say we love the sinner, period. But at the same time, we recognize that this sinner might be doing things that God hates, as all of us have done from time to time. Mm -hmm. And so God himself is a very complex being. God himself is a very complex being. And he hates the wicked, and yet he extends love to them. And I guess we need to be able to do the same. Do the same, yes. There's, uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, there's a man that he talks about in there who was a grump all his life. Mm -hmm. The time comes when he enters hell, he becomes one big grump, is what he talks about, where you become one with the sin that you have cultivated all your life. The distinction between the two cannot be separated by natural means. It's um, is one of his other books he talked about, scales that form upon you like a dragon, like a, like a virus that spreads throughout your whole being. You become one with it. Um, so the distinction between the sin and the sinner in the long run becomes indistinguishable, Lewis says. Wow, you know, I'd never heard that before. That is a very interesting concept, uh, the way in which you've put it there. I've always believed that we can't make this neat separation, but that's powerful that in the end, and I believe that, well, we could get onto the subject of hell, but certainly hell is indeed abandoning you to the sin that um, you idolized when you were living. You and that at least is that. But it's also the wrath of God. Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. Not very popular in today's culture, but biblical. There is no other way for hope. In your book, page 58, you said, God gives us an option to infiltrate without contamination, to infiltrate the world, become in the world, show the light of Christ in that world. But how, Pastor, would the technology that you talk about, which we're inundated with sensuality, materialism, scientism, and all these other isms out there, how do we infiltrate without becoming contaminated? Uh, I smile very carefully. <laughs> See, when Israel was in Babylon, they had several options. One was to isolate themselves, and there are Christians today who believe that they should isolate themselves. They live in communes, they are separate from the world. We know some friends of ours, actually distant relatives, who have no television set. Uh, they don't know what's happening in the world and they have no interest. They are farmers mm -hmm. and they stay there and they do their work. The problem is that they are not influencing culture at all. In other words, no matter what's happening around them, they are totally indifferent to it and not having an impact. On the other hand, you have those who simply assimilate into the culture. They have nothing to say to the culture because they become a part of it. A part of its values. Product, right? Right. Yeah. The other thing is, and this is our calling, Khaldun, difficult though it may be, is to keep yourself uncontaminated from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Yes, most assuredly, and touch not the unclean thing. So I maintain that whether it comes to technology, as I have a chapter on that, and it's total destructive force, by the way. It's an amazing, wonderful chapter, especially the way children are just consumed, subsumed by it, yeah. addicted to it. I quote a woman, from a mother. I, I quote a mother who says, I didn't realize that when I gave my 13-year-old daughter a cell phone, I might as well have given her her first shot of heroin. So on the one hand, yet we all use technology, don't we? I mean, you know, we're using technology right are. now. Yes. So 
the thing is that what we have to do is to say to ourselves, what are those issues in my life where I need to draw the line? And to say, I can do this, 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 but I can't do that, that. It's very difficult, but what we have to do is to trust God to birth such a desire for holiness in our lives that we'll actually come to love Christ more than we'll love our sin. You give uh, an example here of Tony Evans of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, where after his children came back from school, him and his wife would go through a portion of deprogramming. That's what Tony said. He said that the kids had come home and say, you know, and they'd ask, what did you learn today? This, this, this. Well, in some instances, you know, Tony and his wife would have to sit down and say, hey, what you were taught was wrong for these reasons. You know, the whole business of children and education is incredibly important. You know, I also wrote a book, a book about Hitler. You mm -hmm. ought to review that with me sometime. Yes. And one of the things that Hitler did is he controlled the education. Uh, even today, homeschooling is still banned in Germany. Mm. You have to send your children. And by the way, last week I was with someone who has a son in Sweden. Mm -hmm. In Sweden, the children are taken from 12 months, one year old already, and socialized in some kind of a pre-pre-preschool uh, thing. So the culture wants to say, we want to indoctrinate your, your uh, kids in this way. So we might not have a cure for everyone and say, everyone should be homeschooled, that's impossible. Right. Everyone should attend a faith-based school, probably impossible for some. So the parent has to ask themselves, my child is being sent to a secular school. How can I maintain that relationship with the child and the school that the child will learn what it has to learn, but at the same time, see the lies that are also being perpetuated? And that's done by intimately connecting to your children. Connecting, connecting. You write here that you say, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Children must, parents must recognize that children are sexual creatures created in the image of God, either male or female. This desire is innate. It seeks satisfaction, it will not take no for an answer. This urge is not to be condemned. It must be controlled and channeled. Yeah. You want to expand on that? Well, here's the thing. I know of a home, and thank God it wasn't mine when I was growing up, where all sexual expression or desire was totally condemned and shamed. Mm. Well, what happens is when children grow up that way, what happens? They just become secretive mm -hmm. and pretty soon they're into pornography and everything like that and making sure that they hide it very, very well mm. because they are brought up in a home full of shame. So what we have to do is to recognize that children are sexual creatures, to not condemn their desires, but to help them understand how those uh, desires have to be channeled exactly, how they have to be controlled, how temptation has to be resisted, and places where they can go, places where they can't go, excuse me, but once again, the parent is totally monitoring that and all the time in the process of monitoring, instructing, yes. and, and helping them to understand that God is there to help them, but also that there is grace, because there's going to be failure, but there is grace, and what we need to do is to, again, trust God. You know, 
The church is to be in the world as a ship is in the ocean. I use that yes. example. But when the ocean gets into the ship, the ship is in trouble. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is to say, how can we be in the ocean but not of the ocean? And that's different depending on different circumstances. Yes. Will we evangelize the world or will the world evangelize us? So, yeah, yeah, good point. You have here about, okay, so we talked about sexuality a little bit, technology. There's so much here in the amount of time I have. You talk, there's a wonderful chapter here about Islam, immigration, and the church. Um, there's that tension that talks about with immigration. I come from the Middle East, Pastor, from Jordan. Yeah. Um, right, our neighbors are Syrians, one of the greatest refugee crises mm -hmm. in the history of the world. People crossing over to Europe, it's children, families are devastating. Yeah. But you also have the snakes that are seeping in into that, from the garden, so to speak, from the, the, the dark parts, yeah. who are coming in through the, the channels, the proper channels. In the book, you distinguish between how the church should handle it, as a humanitarian organization, one part of it yeah, is yeah. humanitarian, mm -hmm. and as a government. Can you expand on that a little bit? I know it's so much. I, uh, I love to expand on that because I think so that we're Christians are supposed to welcome everyone. <laughs> really? I think that evangelicals sometimes have said something foolish. First of all, talking about Islam, mm -hmm. I discovered that Islam has a very carefully nuanced view of immigration, that the way in which you migrate in order to spread your faith. And uh, so this goes back to the Quran. It certainly goes back to Muhammad, you know, and his trip from, uh, what was it, Medina to Mecca mm -hmm. and uh, to spread the faith. So it's a form of jihad where you get people there, you get a majority there, and then you begin to impact the laws and so forth. But the real reason I wrote the chapter is for a different reason. I heard a pastor say something like this. Well, the gospel says whosoever will may come. So we should invite everyone mm -hmm. into our country. Mm -hmm. And I strongly object to that. Mm. I believe that a country needs very secure borders and those borders have to be protected. Of course, you know, we have laws that say that you can apply legally and right. all those other things. Very strict borders. Because if you don't have borders, you really don't have a country. You're keeping that country and you are making sure that terrorists you know, speaking of America here, did you know that thousands of children have been brought in here illegally and then are in the sex trade? Yes, unfortunately. So Mexican the point border, is yeah. that you have very strong borders. You do not run a country on the basis of compassion. Mm. Compassion is the role of the church. And I point out that the symbol of the state is the sword. Romans, Book of Romans, chapter 13. But the symbol of the, of the church is the cross. Mm. So the church welcomes everybody. You know, you're talking about Syrians. I know a ministry that has been started by a number of churches. They are going into Syrian homes. Syrian homes come into their homes. They are building bridges. They are sharing. They are sharing the gospel. They're sharing their experiences. They are showing love to everyone. That's the role of the church, but it's not the role of the state. And the state could be, if it can be compassionate, fine, but that's not the policy. And then I take on some people who say, well, you know, Jesus was an immigrant. Mm -hmm. You know, he and his parents went down into Egypt. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course, number one, we don't know that they broke any laws, mm -hmm. but number two, the fact is that um, we cannot take an example like that and then say, oh, this is the way we should do American foreign policy. Or you have people saying, well, in the Old Testament, foreigners were allowed to join Israel. Hmm. Wonderful. 
But did you notice this? They had to convert to the Israeli religion of Judaism. There was no such thing as, of course, that was a theocracy. So there was no such thing as people with a different religion in the midst of the Israelites. That was not allowed. Furthermore, to make it even simpler, the church isn't Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, America isn't Israel. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is to make that distinction so that we understand each other and let's not take that which applies to the church, namely love and acceptance to anyone, legal, illegal, and let's not think that that dictates the way in which we should run a country. Hmm. Strong words, Pastor. Strong words, but, yes, but I believe them very deeply. And you know, when you see people at the border, of course we're compassionate. You know, I'm being more frank here than maybe I should be, but then after all, you are interviewing me. What happens is, you know, when you see a woman at the border, a mother with her children, our hearts break. Mm -hmm. And I think that those of us who, who believe in strong borders have just as much compassion as those who don't think we should have strong borders, who should allow everybody in, or almost everybody. But it's just that we recognize that in this fallen world, you can't minister to everyone. A country has to have its own laws. And so you respect those laws. And um, then it's up to the church to do whatever it can do. But let's not confuse the two roles. One is compassion, one is protection. They're different right. things. I like that. I'll use that next time. One think, is compassion, the other is protection. And I think the distinction can be made between the masculine and the feminine and the role of the marriage situation. The man yeah. has one primary role, the woman another. Of course, they interchange when necessary, yeah. but overall, that's, that's the key here. I'm here with Logically Faithful, Pastor Erwin Lutzer. My pastor is at the Moody Memorial Church in downtown Chicago. Welcome back. Continuing on in the book, Pastor, we're going through the church in Babylon, which I highly recommend. We're in chapter 10. You talk about five false gospels within the evangelical church. There's only five false ones. <laughs> but let's uh, let's deep. Let's, can I just list the them sake, quickly? Well, yeah, you can list them, but let's only do two for the sake of time. The two big ones that you think okay. are on the top of the list. Well, you know, I haven't read it for a while, but I do think that probably social justice is number one. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Social justice is your big one on here. Yeah, liberal, social justice. Uh, liberalization. Of yeah. Culture. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Social justice means different things to different people, so we have to speak with care. But social justice for some people is Marxism, because mm. what they mean by social justice is equality of income and equality of money, you know, and so you equalize everyone, and that is justice. And so you have that stream in the social justice movement. And you have a lot of people then who take everything a step further and especially young evangelicals at times, because there are legitimate aspects to social justice. In other words, we should work toward more equality. We should work toward, you know, reconciliation of black and white. We recognize that. Civil rights. Civil rights. But the point is that young evangelicals sometimes take it a step further and uh, really substitute social justice, however they define it, for the gospel. Mm. And the point that I want to make in the book is that we need to understand that uh, the gospel has its implications, but social justice is not the gospel. The gospel is not what we can do for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us and the gift that we have to receive through repentance and faith. 
So you have a lot of people who miss out on the repentance and faith and individual conversion because they're doing social justice. Mm. So that kind of gives a summary of the warning that I have okay. there. For social justice. We have Pacific Garden Mission, for example, in Chicago, yeah. which does a sort of type of social justice to the community by helping the poor, feeding the hungry. Not only that, but uh, I'm going to interrupt you here. You know who started it, D.L. Moody. <laughs> <laughs> which we happen to be at. Yeah, wow. Right. I didn't know he was involved with Pacific oh, Garden yeah. Mission. I know yeah. he was involved mm -hmm. with uh, a few others. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Well. Pacific Garden Mission is an exception to the general rules of humanitarian work where the gospel is integrated in that. Yeah. Tell us one other false gospel that we need to be aware of. In um, well, let me jump to the last one. Mm -hmm. Let me see here. The gospel of um, interfaith dialogue is the very last one. Yes. What I've discovered is we there are evangelicals who are inviting Muslims into church mm -hmm. and they are having a dialogue. Mm -hmm. You say what you believe, I say what I believe. I'm not opposed to debates in certain contexts, but dialogue has a different set of rules. Mm -hmm. And I quote here a book written by Muslims for Muslims on how to make Islam palatable to American audiences. Mm -hmm. So what you have in those kinds of situations is where a Muslim can talk about the Islamic faith, say whatever he likes, without rebuke and so forth. So that's the last one. For example, at the college, but, while you're looking it up, we have debates every year almost. Yeah, and that's good. Yeah. Did you know that you invited me to a university one time? That's correct. To defend the faith and yes. everybody had it. And I guess that was a dialogue of sorts, but that's okay. That was at a university. Mm -hmm. And you remember, the Muslims were able to ask me questions. I was able to ask them questions. And even though it wasn't a formal debate, it was very, very You knocked the ball out of the park there. Well, well I would definitely say that. Set Jesus say apart that. from all other religious leaders. Well, that's, in that's my big uh, yeah. shtick is to do that. Let me give you one other, and that is yeah. the gospel of new spirituality. New age, you're talking? New age. Yes. Here's, oh, this is very there critical. Is, yes. mm -hmm. What's happening is people are going back to the desert fathers and the Desert Fathers were people, you know, who basically were in monasteries and became mystics. And they may have some good things to say. The problem is that that is being synthesized and brought together in a form of Christianity that takes Eastern views of mysticism and combines it with Christianity. Which is what Oprah was popular for, wasn't it? That's exactly right. In other words, where you don't have all these doctrines, you know, young people, oh, you know, the doctrines, they contradict each other and look at all the fights in the church. Well, I would just say to all the young people listening, some of the fights were worth the fight. There's no doubt some of the fights weren't worth the fight, mm. but some were. The issue of salvation, the issue of, and, and so forth. So as a result of that, doctrine is rejected. And what you have is God in the human heart and God basically in everybody. Pantheism. And in a pantheistic world, exactly. And uh, so what you have is all of that is coming into the faith. Even such things in some forms of spiritual formation or spiritual meditation or contemplation. I'm all for meditation and contemplation. I do it all the time in the scriptures. But there are those who say, you know, you empty your mind mm. and you think of one word and then you realize that God is in you and you somehow connect with the divine, boy, that can lead into an awful lot of trouble. And yet a lot, especially, of young evangelicals are being led to that. Now, if people who are listening to this 
There may be many Catholics that are listening, and we certainly welcome them. In fact, obviously, we welcome people from every religion, every background. But I need to say that in the book, I discuss Father Rohr. Mm. Father Rohr is a Catholic priest who wrote a book on the Trinity. It really isn't anything about the Trinity. It's sort of a template for him to share his totally, completely pantheistic view of, of religion. And how you think uh, the Vatican are, would come after it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. a separate story. But anyway, how everybody's part of the flow. Mm -hmm. You don't have to believe anything to get into it. There's no lifestyle you have to live by. And then he makes another statement, and I'm just pulling them out of the air here, where he says that there can be no judgment or wrath in God at all, etc. Okay, now why do I, as a Protestant, have that in my book, and I'll tell you why, Caldoun. Because his publisher said that the largest demographic of people who buy his book are young evangelicals. Mm. So you see, young evangelicals have looked at some of us who are older, and they've said, you know, you fought all these battles, you know, you fought the culture wars and you lost, and we're not into that. We want something that is more acceptable, something that is more loving, and so they become very vulnerable to a form of Christianity that has lost really the uniqueness of Christ and the uniqueness of our deep need of sin and the fact that we need to be rescued. We're coming back to that seeking the comfort without the protection. The no sword, but having the olive leaf, right? Hey, that's interesting. Yeah, seeking the sword, the sword has to be seeking the comfort that Christianity might give, but not seeking the the path and the the, um, the borders that it sets up yeah yeah right exactly. oh and boy get me on that Christianity has many borders Jesus stands alone among all the uh, leaders and the teachers of the world because all the other ones they say what you need to do is you're in a pit you're dealing with sin you're dealing with regret here's a ladder climb this and you can get out but every time you take one step you fall back to mm. Jesus said, I'm coming into the pit mm. and I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to put you in a bucket and I'm going to pull you out and I'm going to declare you to be as righteous as I am so that you can stand before and the my Father. My own body will be broken for you to do it. Yeah. In that pit. Stand right. on my right. own back and come out. That's wow. right. Wow. The cross. The That's cross. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and wow. so what you have is Christianity is the only religion that asks actually rescues us from our sins. All the other ones say, you know, do this. And as you've probably heard me say many times since you've listened to me preach, that all of the other religions have gurus and prophets, do this, do this, do that. Christianity is the only religion where actually Jesus Christ comes and he does everything for us if we admit to our sinfulness and put our faith in him. I mean, there is nobody else out there like Jesus. There's a quote you had in the book, I remember exactly, it was one of the poets who said, all other gods sat under thrones, only you had to. Wow, isn't that interesting? I'll see if I can quote that. Uh, it was, okay, let me see. Uh, let me see, don't try to find it. I'll <laughs> see how good my memory is. Okay. The other gods were strong. Yes. But thou wast weak. They rode. But thou didst stumble to thy throne. Nevertheless, to 
our wounds only God can speak, and none has wounds but thou alone. Wow, that's, you got that number down. <laughs> that is profound. <laughs> only God has wounds, and yeah, his wounds and, alone. And, so, and yeah. so the point is that yeah, only Christianity yes. has a God who's entered into our pit to pull us up. Praise God. That's amazing. Yeah. That gives me hope. Uh, gives let me, hope. Let, let's wrap this up. Okay. We're putting all the time here. So... In the book, you conclude with a metaphor. You have many metaphors in here, which is actually helpful for our readers because the mind works through metaphors. That's what makes the biblical writers so brilliant because they use stories. That's what you've done. You use an example of a man who has a cross who's crawling across the yeah. countryside mm -hmm. with others who have crosses. His becomes too heavy, so he yeah. chops it. Can you expand on that one as we wrap it up yeah. as a metaphor okay. for the life of the sure. Christian? Cutting our convictions short to accommodate the world. What is the consequence of that? So anyway, this guy has a dream, and in the dream, he's carrying a heavy cross, and it's far too heavy, and it's weary. And so he sees a woodsman, and he said, come and cut off part of my cross. So the woodsman comes with a saw and cuts off a good chunk of the cross. The man puts it on his shoulder and is so happy because now he can walk, and it's not nearly as heavy. Mm. But as he walks, he gets to another mountain, a crevice in the mountain that he has to cross, and he wanted to use the cross as a bridge, but it was short just the amount that mm. it was cut off. So he could no longer make any progress. And the big lesson to be learned here is that if you want to make progress in the Christian life, salvation is free. But if you want to make progress in the Christian life, as Jesus said, come and take up your cross and follow me, that cross can become very heavy but that's what you have to carry in order to make progress in the Christian life. And then here's the point, Khaldun. The lighter our cross, the weaker our witness. Mm. You know, I wrote a book on Nazi Germany. Interview me sometime on that. And yes. in that book, there's a pastor who was in the concentration camp. I think he was in Buchenwald. Okay. And he said this, that the time has come in Germany when the gospel can no longer be proclaimed only in word, it must be proclaimed in our willingness to accept martyrdom. So there comes a time when the cross becomes very heavy. And if, if you go through life only wanting to have a lighter cross. The American dream. The American dream, yeah. you'll go to. And one other footnote. Mm. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, I don't think he was talking about cancer or all those things, mm -hmm. which are crosses maybe of themselves. I think he's talking about the trouble you wouldn't have if you weren't a believer. What cross am I carrying? What cross are you carrying? Because you're a follower of Jesus. And that cross in American culture is gonna become increasingly heavy. Mm. And um, I just hope that God grants us the grace to carry it and not try to saw it off. Shortcuts. One final thing. There are people listening to this now who are believers. Some of them are intellectually struggling with their faith. Some are emotionally struggling. Some are in a dark place. And they want to make a light. They want to be a light, but their light bulb is just not shining right now. The fruit on their tree is withering. Do you have any words of hope for them? I do. May I actually look into the camera when I speak those words? Yes, of course. <laughs> well, Khaldun kind of set me up, didn't he, by saying that there are those of you who may be going through depression, you may be going through doubt, 
This may be a difficult stretch in your life. What about you? First of all, I want you to realize that the feelings that you have of depression are not facts. Hmm. The fact is that our feelings often lie to us. What you must do is to continue to trust God to believe his promises, even when you look around and see no reason to believe that God is on your side. The fact is that God often deals with us according to his love and not according to our longings. So don't give up. And if you think that your light is actually very weak or very or flickering, that's okay. Keep it burning. And you can do that through the word, but also through your association with other believers. Simple fact is that the cross of Christ and the people of the cross live together and should share in community because there are times that are so dark that we need others. Do you remember when the disciples were going across the sea and uh, it was four o'clock in the morning, very, very dark. They couldn't see Christ there on the mountaintop, could they? But Christ could see them. He knew the longitude and the latitude of their little boat. He knew the depth of the water. He knew the height of the waves, the speed of the wind, and the strength of every board. So Jesus sees where you are, and your continuing faith is more precious than gold. Take that light. Now, isn't that interesting? I am going to conclude here, Caldoun. Just last night, I learned something that I'm going to try to share right now, and that is that King George the Sixth in 1939, speaking to the English people at Christmas, just as Britain was in the war with Germany, quoted a poem by a woman by the name of um, Minnie Hayworth. I think that was her name. Mm -hmm. And it's a poem you've heard many times, and I'm going to see if I know it well enough to share it with you. I said to the man standing at the gate, Give me a light that I might walk confidently into the unknown. And he said, go into the darkness and put your hand in God's hand, and that will be better than light to you Mm. or a known path. Mm. So my dear friend, I want to encourage you, put your hand in the hand of God, trust in Jesus, and that is better than light or any known path. Thank you, Pastor. Thanks, Kelvin. God bless.